All right, well, before we get started, why don't we uh, start with just a brief word of prayer and then we'll, then we'll get into our study. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, um, once again, just want to pray that you would focus our minds, Lord, as we uh, begin to just discuss and walk through the various passages that um, help us to, to piece together this so important biblical truth, Father. Um, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our guide and that he would guide us through your word and enable us to understand it rightly and apply it to our lives. And Father, we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so tonight going through Article uh, 2 of our Confession of Faith, the, uh, the 1646 London Baptist Confession of Faith. We're talking about the, the Trinity uh, tonight. And I just want to, let me just start by quickly just reading um, the paragraph. It says, in this divine and infinite being, there is the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, each having the whole divine essence Yet the essence undivided, all infinite without any beginning, therefore, but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties. Um, so the, the Trinity, as we talk about this doctrine, is one of the most uh, important doctrines of the Christian faith. It is incredibly important. It's also one of the most uh, misunderstood. Uh, it's one of the most debated doctrines throughout uh, church history. Councils were formed uh, in order to deal with heresies uh, that were the result of, of really the early church fathers trying to understand this, this biblical truth. Uh, let me just start by saying that the word Trinity, it it doesn't appear in the Bible. You're not going to find that anywhere. But it's just a word that the church has uh, developed over the years uh, to just, in one word, simplify this doctrine uh, to communicate what we're talking about. And it, it comes from the Latin. It simply means triunity or three in oneness. Uh, and it comes from a Latin word. I don't know Latin, so I'm not going to attempt it. Um, but that's what the word means. And the early church, as I said, greatly uh, debated and, and wrestled with this doctrine. Um, though the word Trinity is not in Scripture, the concept is clearly there, right? The concept is clearly there. Because you'll have, you know, certain um, cults that will try to make that as an argument, you know, particularly your Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, you know, Trinity isn't even in the Bible. Well, okay, that doesn't mean that the concept is not true. Right? It doesn't mean that it's, it's, it's not there and that it's not discussed. Um, many heresies have had to be, uh, ha have, the church has had to deal with many heresies that have come around from uh, either uh, misunderstanding the Trinity or some of these heresies are the result of trying to overly simplify the Trinity, um, trying to explain it in a way that we can thoroughly understand it when the reality is we can't, thoroughly understand the Trinity. Um, you'll see when we get to the end, 
uh, if you've not studied this topic before, we can, we can explain it, we can define it, but we can't really fully understand it. And when I say we can explain it, I mean, we can teach it. I'm going to teach it, right? We can define it. Uh, that's, what, that's what Article 2 is of our Statement of Faith, right? They're offering a definition. It's a paragraph length, but they're offering a definition of the Trinity. But at the end of the day, um, we really can't wrap our mind around it because there's nothing in creation that we can compare it to. Um, there's nothing that can relate to uh, the Trinity. So first, let me start by saying that the Trinity doesn't simply come about in the New Testament, right? Because if it did, if it was only found in the New Testament, then that would be a little odd. But since this is a biblical truth, and yes, it is most clearly seen in the New Testament, then you would expect to find indications of it in the Old Testament, and I think you certainly do find indications of it in the Old Testament. One is um, Genesis chapter 1, right? I think Genesis chapter 1 is where we first see that, verse 26. Uh, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all that is on the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on uh, the earth. So when God says, let us, who is the us, right? Let us make man in our image. Um, two theories that have been put forward is, uh, one, is it, uh, well, there's actually three theories. Uh, one is that God is referring to the angels, and he's saying, let us make man in our image. Of course, the problem with that is that there is no other indication anywhere else in Scripture that humans are made in the image of angels. Um, we are made in the image of God. Uh, we bear his image. Angels are not co-creators with God. Um, another is that they, they call it a... Um, a royal we, um, and that is that God is sort of speaking in the way that many kings would speak. You know, let let us rule, let us m- make a decree, let us declare. Right when the king is only talking about himself, um, and it's known as a royal we. Uh, the trouble with that, though, is again, as you go through the Bible, through the Old Testament, uh, we don't see God using that kind of language anywhere else. Right? So that's not a common way that God uh, speaks of him, of himself. Um, the other is that God is simply um, thinking out loud, right? Because we've all, we've all done that, right? We do things like, hmm, let's see, what should we do today, right? When you're only talking about yourself, but you say things like, what should we do today? Um, well, well, who's the we? Well, you're just sort of thinking out loud. I don't know, me, myself, and I. Um, could be. Uh, I think the most likely is that it's a reference back to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Right. So, minimally from context, and I think that's always the best way to study the Bible, from context we see that there are at least two people who were involved in creation, God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. So I think it would make sense that verse 26, when he says, let us, it's minimally a reference to God the Father and God 
the Spirit. But then we know from John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made, referring to the Word, who is the Son of God. We know that because verse 14 then says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, referring to Christ, right, the second person of the Godhead. So then I think Genesis 1.26 is a, is a reference to uh, the triune God. Um, I think there is a, a clear in indication there. Um, we also see it in places like Psalm 45, for example. Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Who are we talking about? Therefore, God, your God. Right? Well, who's, who's the God of God? So there's clearly a, an indication there that the psalmist understands two divine beings. Now, this is not uh, polytheism here. Um, they clearly understood there's only one God. The Jews were definitely monotheistic, right? But I think there's an indication here that at least the psalmist who writes this understands a plurality within the Godhead. Another one that is very similar that Jesus himself cited was uh, Psalm 110. This will be a familiar one to many of you who are familiar with the, uh, with the New Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, this is what David writes, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies. Your, well, who is he talking about? Right? Even Jesus used that. He said, answer me this question. And the Pharisees were stumped. Like, oh, not sure, right? Well, who is David referring to? The Lord Notice it's all cap is Yahweh. So Yahweh says to my Lord, well, who is the Lord of David if other than Yahweh? And Yahweh says to my Lord, whoever that Lord is, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So there are definitely, I think, indications in uh, the Old Testament. You see it also in Isaiah 63 would be another indication of plurality within the Godhead, Isaiah 63.10. God says, but they, he's talking about Israel, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against him. Grieved his Holy Spirit. So there's, there's an indication that the Holy Spirit is a distinct person from God because he can be grieved, right? They grieved his Holy Spirit. Uh, indicating that the, the Spirit is a distinct person uh, um, other than God the Father. So obviously the Trinity becomes much clearer when we get to the New Testament. Um, Matthew chapter 3, we see all three persons of the Godhead that are involved in the baptism of Jesus. Right, Matthew three sixteen and seventeen, 
or 16, yeah, yeah, where is it? Yep. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. So you've got Jesus being baptized. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So you've got all three persons involved in the baptism of of Jesus. And then, of course, Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission, the Trinitarian formula. Um, Jesus says, go therefore make disciples of all nations, right? Uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, right? That only makes sense um, when, you know, in, in, you know, when we understand that the Father and the Son or, or the Father and, and the Holy Spirit are divine, um, we know that the Holy Spirit, even in the Old Testament, is the Spirit of God. It is, he is divine. But then you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? So there's that Trinitarian formula that we see in various places in, um, in the New Testament. You see it in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. We're not going to turn to all these. Here's just a, a, a snippet. Uh, also Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 6. You see it in 1 Peter 1, 2. You see it in Jude, verses 20 and 21, where there is this reference to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, being a means of grace, being a blessing, or whatever the case uh, may be. All right, so when discussing the Trinity, um, there are three propositions that need to be kept in mind. Um, one is that there is one God. Okay, that's... There's one God. That's clear from the very beginning. I mean, the clearest indication is um, Deuteronomy chapter 6, the great Shema. Number two, God is three persons. There is one God. God is three persons. And each person is fully God. Um, you take away one of those and you end up with a heresy, right? You can't just say... Um, there is one God and God is three persons and stop there, right? You end up with a heresy. You can't say God is three persons and each is fully God because then you end up with polytheism. Um, all three of those are important when we talk about the Trinity. There is one God. God is in three persons and all three are fully God. Um, thus, when beginning the discussion of the Trinity, it's important to remember that the scriptures are very clear. There is only one God, right? That's the first proposition that is extremely clear from scripture. We looked at these last week. Uh, I want to revisit them. Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel. And all of these are just right here in this section. Isaiah 44, 45, and 46. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Right? Very clear. Uh, we see this again in Isaiah 45, 5. The very next chapter. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. There is no God besides me, is what God says. I'm the only one. And then, the very next chapter, 
Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. Okay, I said this last week. Those are great. Those three verses are great verses to take Mormons to, right? I am God and there is no other. There is only one God. There are no other gods out there according to uh, Scripture. This, again, is stated in the New Testament. 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.5. We don't just find these kind of statements in the Old Testament. 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. But I mean, the, the opening words of that verse, there is one God. Right? So I think that is really clear. It's very important to keep that in mind. Um, and that's never really been questioned by the church, whether or not there's multiple gods. Right? The Jews were um, monotheists. Uh, the, the, the New Testament church... Uh, the apostolic church, the early church fathers were all monotheists. There's, that's never really been debated. The question is, what do we do about Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Right? That's the, you know, all right, there's one God, we get that, we've always understood that, but what do we do with Jesus? And what do we do with the Holy Spirit? Let's look at the second proposition. God is three persons. Right? God is three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each distinct persons. Um, again, no one questions that the Father is a distinct person, um, but there has been debate as to whether or not, uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, Jesus is not the Father. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit, right? They are distinct persons with their own unique qualities yet each one is fully God. The Son is a distinct person from God the Father. Multiple texts that we can go to, but I want to give you a few. Well, first of all is John 1, 1 and 2. John 1, 1 and 2. We'll probably come to this passage a few times. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Right, that's, that's making a distinction. He's alongside God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Also, John 17, 14. I want to make a comment on that. Sure. Because you're talking about the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, in there, in there it just says, and there was a God. Right. Which separates Christ again. See? Yeah. So, it's not, that's not in the original manuscripts. They put it in there. Right. Well, where they get that from is that the Greek does not Greek does not have an indefinite article. Um, it doesn't exist, right? Like we have the word a. Um, Greek either has a definite article or no article. <coughs> if there's a definite article, you know that it's talking about God. If there isn't a definite article, um, it can go either way. The trouble is they are not consistent with that. Because they want to argue that there's no indefinite, um, there's no definite article, and there's no indefinite article. So they want to say, since there's no definite article, they want to say that uh, the word was uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word was a God. But they are not consistent, even in this own chapter, because if you look down, um, same, uh, same. 
It's the same chapter. Uh, Philip and Nathaniel. Here it is. So go toward the end of chapter 1. Verse 49. So remember in verse 48, it says, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him before Philip called you uh, when you were under the fig tree. I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Right? Where it says you are the King of Israel, there's no the there in the Greek. There's no definite article. And yet, even in the Jehovah's Witness Bible, they insert the word the, and you could point out to them, shouldn't that say you are a king of Israel? I mean, if you're going to be consistent with your translation, should this not be you are a king of Israel? And they'll say, well, no, because he is the king of Israel. Okay, so now they're just picking and choosing, right? Um, so th they're not consistent in their translation of the Greek. Right, yes, they do that with the Holy Spirit as well. Right. Ridiculous. Yes. Yeah. Um, but good, good, uh, good point uh, to bring that up because uh, sometimes they'll try to throw that out at you, and you can point out that you're not being consistent in the way that they translate uh, uh, the Greek. John chapter seventeen, verse fourteen. Jesus praying to the Father, and he says, "I have given them your word." And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So the point is that Jesus is praying to the Father. I mean, we can just start at the very beginning, right? Um, uh, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Well, who is Jesus talking to if he's not a distinct person, right? He's... he's, he's He's either talking to someone else who is a distinct person from himself or Jesus is schizophrenic, right? We know that he's not a schizophrenic. Right? So, he's, so clearly these are indications that Jesus is distinct from the Father. He saw himself that way. And again, 1 John 2, 1, just another um, quick text that makes it very clear that Jesus is distinct from the Father, 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So Jesus is an advocate who is with the Father, right? He is alongside him. He stands in front of him. He advocates on our behalf. So there's clearly a distinction then between the Father and uh, the Son. The Holy Spirit is a distinct person. This is important. Because there's a lot of confusion even today in, uh, in, in, in a lot of, among Christians, among evangelical Christians. The Holy Spirit is not just the power of God. The Holy Spirit is not just the force of God. He's not just a force, right, like Star Wars. Um, he is a person, and he is a distinct person from God the Father, and he's a distinct person from God the Son. Um, where do we get this from? 2 Corinthians 13, 14 is... Uh, one place we get this from. Uh, 
Second Corinthians 13. Uh-oh. Yeah, 13, 14. The grace of oh, I'm in First Corinthians. <laughs> Go ahead and read it since you're there. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, right? How do you fellowship with just an impersonal force, right? Um, he's not just a, a, an impersonal force. He's not. We can have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. That indicates that He is a person, just like God the Father is a person, the Son is a person, just like we are persons. Uh, somebody look up Romans eight twenty six and twenty seven, and read it. Eight twenty six and twenty seven, or whoever gets there first. Go ahead. So when we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Right? That's intentional. That's conscious, right? He intercedes and prays on our behalf, right? So, what's that? To, to the, the Father. Father. Yes, he's praying to the Father. Um, or he may be praying to the Son. Um, but the Holy Spirit prays. We can have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. He prays um, on our behalf. 1 Corinthians 2.10 says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The Holy Spirit searches, right? That's, a, that's a, something that a person does, right? He searches the depths of God. Um, or, here's another one, and you all are familiar with this. Um, actually, let's, let's look at it. It's good to see it with your own eyes. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. The whole story of... Ananias and Sapphira, right? You remember that one? There you go, right? Verse, uh, beginning in verse 3, uh, Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of... You can, you can lie to him. Right? What's that? He is. The Holy Spirit is omniscient. That's right. But the fact that you can lie to him means that he's not just a force. He's not just an impersonal power. He's a person who can be lied to, who can be offended, is, is the point. Um, and Ephesians 4.30 tells us that when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. He can be grieved by our sins. right? So the Holy Spirit is a person, and he is a distinct person from uh, God the Father and from God uh, the Son. What is the scripture where it talks about the Holy Spirit? I forget what the scripture is. convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. Um, that's going to be in the Gospel of John. Yeah, that's going to be in the Gospel of John. Yeah. And um, I want to say chapter 16. Yeah, John 16, 8. 
And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. That passage. And so, yes, he, he works in the hearts of people and convicts them of their sin. So, so we've established that the, the Father is his own person. Everybody knows that. The Son is his own distinct person. The Holy Spirit is a person. And each is fully God. Each one is fully God. Again, there's no question that the Father is fully God. That's never been debated, right? The question is, what do we do with God the Son? And what do we do with God the Holy Spirit? The Son is fully God. Again, John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Even if you were to debate the Greek translation there, it goes on to say, and through him, that is through the word, all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. John is clearly echoing the opening words of Genesis 1, 1, right? John is telling his readers, when you read Genesis 1, understand Christ is, is there. It is, it is through Christ that all things were made. And without Christ, nothing was made that has been made. The disciples recognized Jesus as being God. Look at, uh, we're in John. Look at John 20, verse 8. So if you went to John 16 with me, just flip over to chapter 20. Post-resurrection, doubting Thomas. Then the other disciples who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. Uh, da, 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 okay, yeah, 20. I got to type on my notes. We're looking at, let's, let's just go. It's, it's where he, he reveals himself to Thomas. Um, I might have meant 18. No, I meant 28. So he reveals himself to Thomas, John 20, 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. My God. Whoa, wait a minute, you know, Thomas was raised a good Jew. And yet he's looking at Jesus and saying, my God, right? Or look back at Matthew, last chapter of Matthew, Matthew 28. Matthew 28. These are, these are verses, single verses that we, we tend to just sort of skim right over. And we don't really get the full impact of what is, of what is taking place. Um, you look at Matthew uh, 28, verse 9, again, post-resurrection. And behold, Jesus met them, the disciples, and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They worshipped him. Look at verse 17. Um, and when they saw him, so now, well, look at verse 60 to give it context. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. These are all Jews who were raised to believe that there is one God, monotheism, one God of the Old Testament who created all things. They understood the first and second commandments. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other God before me. Right? You do not worship anyone but Yahweh. And yet here they are falling at the feet of Christ and worshiping what would appear to be a man. They understand this is God. The God of the Old Testament is standing in human form right in front of us. 
What an amazing revelation for them. Yeah, Bobby. Well, one of the things that I found interesting is in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the word Elohim, is, which is God, mm -hmm. it's, it's in the singular, but the I am in the Hebrew actually is like our S. Yes, it's in the plural. It's a plural. Elohim is, makes it, yeah, the I am, the im at the end makes it plural. And, uh, and it's always that way. When it's talking about God, the one true God, um, it's Elohim. And, and no one's really been able to explain why that is. Um, I've read a ton of commentaries on that. Um, it, just, it just appears that way um, in the plural. Uh, and I think the reason is, is that God is a plural being, right? He's a plural being. There is one God, but he exists in a plurality, Father, Son, and uh, Holy Spirit. Um, so the disciples recognized Jesus as God, right? And then, of course, we're familiar with these passages. Just Jesus himself claimed to be God. And we know that he was claiming to be God because the Jews wanted to stone him for it, right? They understood what he was saying. John chapter 8. John chapter 8, 56 to, uh, to 59. 856. Yep. Uh, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? How, how have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Right? They would have caught that because Jesus is answering their question. I saw him because I was there. I saw him because I'm the one who called him out of Ur. That's his point. I'm the one who called him out of Ur, the Chaldeans. I saw him because I'm the one who made the covenant with him in Genesis chapter 15. Right? I'm the one who walked through the pieces in Genesis chapter 15. And so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I mean, they understood clearly what he just said. Oh my word, he is claiming to be the God of the Old Testament, the God of Genesis 1. John chapter 10, 30 to 33, right? He does it again. He doesn't just do it once. He does it. He, he loves ruffling their, fe their feathers. <laughs> John getting a rile out of them. So he says, John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered him, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? Right? Uh, what have I done wrong? And they say, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Right? They, it was not lost on them what Jesus is saying. You, you're claiming to be God. That is the highest of blasphemies. Um, right. Sure. They thought he was a mere man. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Most of them still do. Yeah. I mean, because it, it requires the Holy Spirit to open 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 their eyes. Right. I mean, remember um, uh, when everybody walks away from uh, from 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 Jesus's ministry because he's taught some crazy things. You know, he says to to the disciples. You know, who do you say that I am? 
And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, son of Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my own father has made this known to you, right? You didn't figure this out on your own, Peter. God the Father revealed this to you and has opened your eyes so that you can see that, so that you can see that truth. The Holy Spirit is also fully God. And this is sort of what I was, uh, I was getting ahead of myself earlier. But when you look at the Trinitarian formula in Matthew 28, 19, that formula only makes sense once we understand that the Father is obviously God, the Holy Spirit is God, and that's why Jesus' name is in there. Because it would be odd to, if, if Jesus had said, you know, go and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and Michael, the archangel, right? What? Wait a minute. That's, why is his name in there? I mean, that doesn't seem to fit, right? Jesus is in there, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because all three are God. All three are fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. Jesus is fully God. Uh, no, but I can. Colossians uh, 2? Or Colossians, Colossians 1. 1. Go ahead and read it. Um, let's talk about Jesus, the preeminence of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And mm. he is the head of the body. Mm. And it goes down to, to 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him the reconciliation of himself to all things. Right. And to me, that's the clearest one. Of, he is that, God. That is extremely clear. Yeah, he is the image of the invisible God. Through him all things were created. Um, I love that language, the image of the invisible God. It reminds me of Hebrews chapter 1, talking about the Son. 1.3, Hebrews says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he evolves the universe by christ is the exact imprint of god's nature right he is god he or or as colossians says the image of the invisible god in other words if if god had a face what would that face look like look like jesus right jesus is god in human form god decided to put on human flesh and that was Jesus and God walked among us God lived among us <laughs> yeah there's no according according to Isaiah right he had no beauty that we should look upon him um, um so the Holy Spirit is fully God and uh, we've established that because again you look at um um, uh, well, we, we looked at this once before when we were seeking to prove that the Holy Spirit was a person, but the same passage can be used in determining that the Holy Spirit is fully God. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, again, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? Verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain in your own? And after it was sold, was it not your, at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Right? So Peter is saying, by lying to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. How is that? Because the Holy Spirit is God. 
right? So the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is fully God. Um, now, when we talk about the Trinity, because it can be hard to wrap our minds around all of this, right? Because, again, there is one God. Each person is fully God, but that doesn't mean we have three gods. There's one God that exists in three persons. They all fully possess the essence of God, but yet, at the same time, they are distinct persons from one another. And so we have to be careful in making attempts, and this is where the church has gone wrong, in making attempts to simplify the Trinity in order to try and understand it and make it understandable in our own mind. Right? One of the great heresies in the early church was Arianism. Um, Arius was a bishop of Alexandria, lived A.D. 250 to about A.D. 336. And um, Arius argued that there was a time when the Son did not exist. In fact, there was a time when the Holy Spirit did not exist, and there was only the Father. So the Holy Spirit and the Son are both created beings. Well, once you say that, then you cannot say that the Son is fully divine because now he's finite, right? Because the fi to be finite means that you are limited in some way. He's no longer infinite. God is infinite because God is, has no limits. He's not bound by time. He has no beginning. He has no end. His knowledge is limitlessness, is limitless, right? He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. There is no place where God is not. And so if you say the Holy Spirit or the Son were created at some point, they cannot be fully God. So this was a heresy that was denied or denounced rather by the Council of Nicaea in three, uh, 325. And, uh, and that's what we are, have begun reading through um, uh, in church. Uh, another heresy that has been condemned by the church is modalism. Right? And that is that, that there is one God who appears in three different modes. Right, That's where the phrase comes from. He appears in three different modes or forms. Sometimes he appears as the Father, whoever he's talking to, or he appears as the Son, or he appears as the Holy Spirit. Um, you run into all kinds of problems with that. An analogy that is oftentimes used, it's like, it's like well, you know, I am one person, right? But I am, I am a father, and I am a husband, and I am a son. So you see, that's the Trinity, right? Um, but that's not the Trinity because all that means is that I, it, it, it has to do with who I'm relating to at the time, right? If I'm relating to my mom, well, at that moment, I'm relating to her as a son. If I'm relating to my wife, I'm relating as a husband. If I'm relating to my kids, I'm relating as a father. The trouble you get into, though, is that what do you do about Jesus' baptism, right, where you see all three persons involved? What do you do about uh, the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17? Who is Jesus praying to, himself? I mean, it's a bit schizophrenic there, right? I mean, he's, he's praying to the Father, but he's praying to himself. He's, none of that makes um, any sense. Uh, the other one is, is, is partialism. Yeah. Just, I don't know if you guys are aware, there is a, a growing... 
acceptance of modalism. There's a church in Temple that's very active. I've had several women when I lived there approach me at Walmart and talk to me, and they are they hold modalism. Yeah, it is it is a thing that's growing. And yeah, they're very prominent in this area. Well, it, it's not so much that it's it's growing. It's always been around. Yeah. It's always been around. Um, Christians just you know, churches aren't teaching this stuff accurately. Um, I mean, I was surprised. Women were teaching it that way. Though. They were teaching it yes, that way? They, they knew what they were talking about. Okay. They were just like, um, so what are they accomplishing by doing that? Well, I think she was trying to evangelize me. What and I mean is, how important their church. is it to put, a, put, you know, put forth that instead of just the gospel? Right, right. right. Why, why focus on that? How right. bring them into their truth? Well, and I can see it in a sense of once we were talking, she realized that I had some Bible knowledge, so she was probably trying to correct me into, you know, so I can see if it's an important tenant in their church. Right. Because it does differentiate them from other Baptist churches. Right. I, I tend to view those sort of things, I, I, if I can answer your question, is um, it, it's, like a, it's like a form of modern Gnosticism. You know, whenever you get Christians who believe we understand something that no one else does, uh-huh. right? We've got like secret knowledge. We've got information that, that no one else does, and they feel zealous about it. Um, and, you know, honestly, it's, it's the mark of cults um, because JWs are the same way. You start talking to Jehovah's Witness, and they're not just going to give you the gospel. They want to make sure you understand that Jesus is a created being, right? Um, what's that? Yes. Yeah. Um, you talk to Mormons, and you don't have to talk to them long before they want to make sure you understand that there are a lot of gods, and if you become a Morgan, you can be a Mormon, you can be the god of your own. You know that's very important to them. But when you talk about the true church, true Christianity, the gospel is what matters, mm-hmm. right? We just want to give you the gospel. Everything else will come later, you know. But you need to understand that Christ died on the cross for sins, and that you're a sinner, and that's what's important. When you run into cults. Their little secret knowledge that they have becomes the thing that's front and center. Um, yeah, Jack. So, like, that whole modalism thing, doesn't that make Christ kind of like less smaller? Well, <laughs> it's a good question. You know, yes and no. I mean, it, 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 it kind of doesn't make them less important because they're all the same person in modalism. Um, there's only one. There's only one person who just presents himself differently. But what it does is it, it's, it simply demolishes so many important doctrines, such as justification by faith alone. It, uh, it destroys the, uh, the atonement. Um, you know, it, it, it just, it, it calls into question so much of Scripture. Um, scripture, you can't, Scripture becomes untrustworthy um, because Scripture makes clear that there's a Father who plans out redemptive history. There's the Son who carries it out, who is sent by the Father. Jesus even says that. I, I have come to do my Father's will who sent me. But if there's no one who actually sent Jesus, then he's not actually being truthful there. He's being deceptive. And so it just, it turns all of Christianity on its head, is what modalism does. Um, and there are Christians out there who will still um, believe this, though they won't teach it and they don't realize it. Um, and where I'm getting that is I've actually taught, 
I remember teaching a Bible study when I was in seminary uh, in my living room, and I was teaching on the Trinity, and there was a woman there. I still remember her name. I can picture her face. And as I'm explaining this, it was like a light bulb came on, and she had been in church her whole life. And she said, wait a minute. So she, she said, I always thought that there was like one God. I mean, I get that, but he just sort of appeared in different ways. And so then I began to explain to her, well, that, that's modalism. It's a heresy. It's been condemned. No, there's one God, three distinct persons. The Holy Spirit is an actual person. She was floored by all of this. Um, I think she was a genuine believer. She grew up in Baptist churches, but just had this wrong understanding of what the Trinity is like and how does it function. Um, yes, Margot. Yeah, I grew, I grew up believing that the Trinity was an aid. Right. Yeah. And that's the next one I was going to go to. That's actually partialism. Right. Um, sometimes it's a, the three leaf clover. If you guys watch the video, then you, you caught all of this. Right. <laughs> but 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 yeah, I and I remember being taught that as a young Christian. Right. Oh, the Trinity is like an egg. Right. You've got one egg, you know, but you've got the shell and you've got the the yolk and you've got the white. The problem with that is that they can be divided. Right. The Godhead cannot be divided. Uh, they cannot be separated. They are, um, they are uh, distinct from one another, but they are indivisible. So wherever the Father is, the Son and the Holy Spirit is there. Wherever the Spirit is, the Father and the Son are there. Um, they are indivisible. So the problem with the egg analogy is that when you separate them, now you only have one-third of each. Right, you have right? a shell, it's not right. an egg. It's not an egg. It's just one third of the egg, right? And then you've got the yolk, which is not an egg. By itself, it's not the egg. It's just a part of the egg. And this is where the difference becomes in. Jesus, by himself, is fully God. By himself, he's fully God. The Holy Spirit, by himself, is fully God. The Father is fully God. But they cannot be separated. All three together make God. They are the Godhead and yet individually they are fully God as well. So partialism is, is another heresy that's been condemned uh, by the church over the years, but it keeps coming back up. You keep hearing it taught. You're just making me, because it's like, you know, which came first, the chicken and the egg, so it's like, right. okay, if God's an egg, then it would beg the question, well, who came first? Right. <laughs> Which well, came yeah, from. some of them would say the father did. Three, they yeah, God, Ar Ar Arians would say the father did. The father came first and he created the other two, right? And then, of course, the fourth uh, heresy is, is tritheism, and that's that there's three gods, right? Yeah, there's, there's, they're each god. There's three gods. Oh, my word. Benny, Benny Hinn. Benny Hinn once had a revelation that there were nine in the Godhead. Um, Mo oh, Arianism. Arianism, and that is that the Son and the Holy Spirit were created at some point. They had a they had a a beginning. Um, tritheism, and uh, and that would be what like you know Muslims accuse Christians of uh, that we actually worship three gods, and uh, they can't wrap their head around. No, we only worship one God. Um, and then they're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. You know, well, join the club. Right? Uh, we accept it in faith, right? It, 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 we can't wrap our mind around it. You know, other illustrations I've heard, well, it's like 
water can exist in three different forms, right? It can be a solid, it can be a vapor, and it can be a liquid, right? Okay, but still, you still end up, that's really just modalism. It's in different modes, it's it, right? The only way that analogy would work is, and I've told people this, the only way that that would be an accurate analogy is, is take one water molecule and simultaneously that one water molecule is a vapor and a liquid and a solid. Well, that's just not possible scientifically. Well, there you go, right? There's, that's, that's the one God who simultaneously exists in three persons that are distinct from each other yet are indivisible from one another. Um, Right. 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 So to bring up a word that I used last week, right, the transcendence of God. God is just beyond us. I mean, you know, trying to fully understand God, I've said this before, is like an ant trying to understand the Internet. I mean, you know, you know, that 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 little bug can crawl around that computer screen all day long. And I mean, he's not going to get very far. Right. We we cannot fully wrap our minds around God. Um, because there's nothing we can compare him to. Um, all right, so distinctions and relations among the persons of the Godhead. And I've got some verses here, but I'll just throw them out to you if you want to take notes. We're, we've, we're going way over at this point. Um, three, three distinctions and relations among the persons of the Godhead. Number one, uh, they each have different roles or functions, right? They each have different roles. Um, they have different roles within uh, creation. Um, Genesis 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And you see, and the, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, right? And then it says, and God said, let there be light. So the, the implication is that God does the speaking and the Holy Spirit does the work. Um, you also see that in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him, through the word, all things were made, right? So God the Father works through God the Holy Spirit and God the Son to create. They have different roles in redemption. Um, John 17, 4, I'll just read that one real quick. Um, John 17, 4, Jesus is praying, and he says to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, right? That you gave me to do. Uh, he also says, Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse uh, 63, John six sixty three, that I have come to do the will of him who sent me, right? So in redemptive history, what we understand is the Father lays out the plan of redemption, right? He, he, he comes up with the plan. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to save people, and I'm going to send you my son, and the son goes, right? The father lays out the plan. The son carries out the plan of redemption, right? He's the one that comes to earth, takes on human form, lives a life of obedience, dies on the cross, 
and the Holy Spirit applies the work of redemption, right? Jesus will talk about that in um, um, John. Oh, actually, John 6.63 is the one that I was thinking of there. John 6.63, let me quote it. Let me read it. It is the Spirit who gives life, right? It is the Spirit who gives... The Spirit applies the work of redemption. So God the Father lays out the plan. God the Son carries out the plan. The Holy Spirit applies the work of redemption. They each have different roles and functions within the Godhead. Uh, They each relate to the other differently, right? The Son submits to the Father and is sent by the Father, John 4, 34, Right, um, the Father has sent me. I, I, my, I, I do the will of my Father who sent me, um, and He submits to His will. The Spirit submits to and is sent by both God the Father and God the Son, the Holy Spirit. So the Son is sent by the Father, the Holy Spirit is sent by, and so the Holy Spirit submits to the will of God the Son and God the uh, God the Father. You see that in John fourteen sixteen. John 15, 26, and John 16, 7 are where we get those references from. Okay, 14, what? I'm sorry, 14, 16, 15, 26, and John 16, 7. All three persons are one being or one essence. That's the language that is used in that first article. Uh, let me just read it again. And notice, I didn't break it down, the, the article, because I didn't really like the order. Uh, I thought it would make more sense to approach it differently. But now, let me just read the article. In this divine and infinite being, talking about God, because it's, it's picking up from Article 1, which talks about God. So, in this, meaning God, that we just talked about, in this divine and infinite being, there is the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, each having the whole divine essence, meaning each one is fully God. Yet the essence is undivided. In other words, there's not a third God, a third God, a third God. They each are fully God. All, all three of them, are infinite without any beginning, therefore, but one God. Right? All three are infinite. Who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several particular relative Properties. That's their way of saying they are distinct persons, right? By, by, by particular relative properties, uh, meaning the Father is not the Son, Son is not the Father, and etc., so on and so forth. Yeah, Bobby. Um, to me, it's important to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, you don't want to make the mistake of thinking somehow the roles are not the same as the attributes because right. the attributes... If you do a an attributal study of the Trinity through right. Scripture all the way right. from front to back, right. they all share the same attributes. Yes, that's right. Because the attributes are connected with the essence. Right. right. Um, right. When we talk about the attributes of God, I mean just right there, right? Each one is God. Right. So these are the attributes of the Holy Spirit, God the Son, God the Father. All three of them are omniscient, omnipresent, um, uh, are sovereign, right? Almighty, um, all powerful, um, immutable. That's right, right. So all of all of the attributes of God pertain to all three. All right. So what what's the application? All of this matters because we see the marks 
of our Creator in creation. Right? We see this in creation. We see unity in diversity in creation itself. For example, we just see it in our solar system. Right? One solar system, various parts, perfectly balanced. Right? We see it in marriage. Uh, two persons that are fully made in the image of God, yet when the two are joined in marriage, they become one flesh, but they're still two distinct persons, but in the eyes of God, they become one flesh, and one is subordinate to the other, right? But the subordination has nothing to do with value or less significance. Christ is subordinate to the Father, right? He submits to the will of the Father, but He is fully God and fully deserving of worship. We see it within the church as well, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, right? There are many members, but one body, right? Um, and, and even among the members, uh, they don't have, all, don't have the same level of authority. There are subordinate roles within the church, but nonetheless, many members, but one body, and that body is the body of Christ. So we see the marks of our Creator in creation itself, and that would make sense, right? Because this is what we see in God uh, Himself. That's it. Any other questions or comments? No? All right. Amen. Well, let's, uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we, um, we just stand amazed by you, Lord. Uh, by you, your Son, uh, your Holy Spirit, Lord. We um, cannot fully understand you, um, but that is why you are God and, and we are not. And Father, we pray that uh, this truth would just uh, uh, cause us to trust you more. Uh, to worship you more, to exalt your glory more, uh, that it was cause us to realize how uh, truly small we are in comparison uh, to you and that it would humble us, Lord God, and cause us to become even more dependent uh, on you. And Lord, we just uh, we praise you, we love you, we adore you, Lord God, and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.